of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. What a blessing to see these kids go out of here with their Bibles. That blesses my heart. 1 John. This morning we're beginning a study in a new book, and for the next four months or so, Lord willing, and Jesus doesn't return, we'll be studying the book or the epistle of 1 John. Our study in the Gospel of Mark was, I hope, challenging and and rewarding, but our study in 1 John is, is going to be a little more meaty, if you like. As we begin our studies in 1 John, it'll take us to another level, to a level of Christian growth, to a different level of understanding. And this morning, we won't do much more than just an introduction of this challenging little epistle, so let me lead us in a word of prayer before we begin. Lord, it is always a privilege to open up your word, and we're thankful this morning that we have opportunity to do so. And we pray now, Lord, that as we begin this wonderful yet challenging little epistle, that You'll speak to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that there would be an air of excitement, an air of anticipation about what what it is you want to do in our hearts and lives through the study of this book. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we ask now that you'll bless the teaching of it. In Jesus' name, amen. As you read the epistle of 1 John, you notice right away that nowhere in the letter is the author identified. But all the evidence, internal and external, points to the Apostle John. The early church consistently recognized John as the author, and this has been and is the accepted view of most Bible scholars. There are a few, however, who would argue that John was not the author, but they have no credible evidence to support their position, and so we accept readily that John is in fact the author and by doing so it also saves me a little work. (laughs) The author of this letter was no doubt the Apostle John because only someone as well known as John with his preeminent status as an apostle would be able to write with such authority expecting complete obedience from his readers without clearly identifying himself. John was known to his readers and so he didn't have to identify himself in this letter. John probably wrote this letter sometime between 90 and 95 A.D. from Ephesus. And it was not written to a particular individual or church. It was written to all the churches of Asia Minor, which John was overseeing. And John, when he wrote this letter, was an old man, a very old man. But even though he was very old, he was still very active in ministry. 
He was actively ministering in all the churches. And it's reported by the early church fathers that during this time, John, in addition to overseeing many of the churches that had sprung up, he was also carrying out an extensive evangelistic program. He was also conducting an extensive writing ministry. John was the last remaining apostle. He was the last of the twelve who had had intimate personal contact with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. He was the last apostolic eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so his testimony was highly authoritative among the churches, as it should have been. People wanted to hear what the one who had firsthand experience with the Lord had to say, and what John had to say in this letter was of extreme importance. John was writing out of a deep concern. John was very concerned for his readers. And in writing this letter, he does so with a very warm, very fatherly, uh, actually we should probably say a grandfatherly tone. He writes as a father who's very concerned for the safety of his children who may be led astray, which brings us to why John wrote this epistle. In writing this letter, the Apostle John was responding not to persecution from the outside world, but to seduction from inside the church. He wrote in response to false teachers who had risen up within the congregations he was writing to. And these false teachers were explaining Christian doctrine in a a way that was false. And they did so to such a degree that they had caused debate, uncertainty, and outright confusion among God's people. And it had reached a point that John tells us that these individuals were of the spirit of the Antichrist himself. And he said in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, we need to understand that John in writing this is not talking about people who for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, left one church fellowship and went to another church fellowship. He's not talking about genuine believers who change churches. Rather, he is speaking about those who profess to be believers, but who were in fact false teachers who left the true church of Jesus Christ. John is speaking about the individuals who caused the confusion and left the flock of God because they were teaching a false Christianity. Well, what were they teaching? Well, these false teachers, first of all, we need to understand, were people who were nurtured in the early days on the things of God, but in whom the Word of God had never taken root. These were people who were very knowledgeable of Christianity. They were people who appeared to be very spiritual, but who in fact were extremely dangerous. They weren't out to destroy Christianity. They would have never said that. If you had asked them, they would have said they were improving it. They would have said, hey, we're Christian people. But we're just improving Christianity. We're going to mix philosophy with biblical truth. We're going to show that some of the things that John and the other apostles said are distinctive about Christianity are not distinctive. The particular heresy these false teachers were advocating eventually became known as Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know or or means knowledge. And the Gnostics claimed to have a knowledge, a higher truth, known only to those who were in on the deep things, namely themselves. Only they had the mystical knowledge of truth that was higher even than the written word of God. The Gnostics also believed that all matter was evil. 
All that was physical and material was evil. The physical was evil and the non-physical or the spirit was good. And therefore, according to them, it didn't matter what you did with your flesh. It would, it would never be good anyway. And so they believed that you could live in total immorality and it wouldn't matter because it wouldn't affect your spirit, which was good. They could live in total immorality and claim they had no sin because sin was linked with the body and couldn't touch those focusing on the spiritual side of life. And so they could claim they actually had not committed any sin at all. So though they lived in sin, they claimed they had no sin. They also claimed to be having a very special fellowship with God. And because they considered the physical evil, it was unthinkable to them that God could ever come as a man with a physical body. Among the Gnostics, there were different, uh, different forms of Gnosticism. One form was docetism, and that word in the Greek means to appear. And the docetist Gnostics denied the Incarnation. They denied Jesus' humanity, that he was fully God and fully man. They said that Jesus did not actually live. He didn't have a real human body. He merely appeared to live. He was a phantom or a spirit being. And they made outrageous claims like when Jesus walked down the beach, he didn't leave any footprints. Why? Well, because he was a spirit. According to them, if you attempted to take hold of Jesus, you would have simply grabbed thin air because he wasn't human, only spirit. Then there were the Serinthian Gnostics who followed a man named Serinthius. And they believed that Jesus was a man, only a man. They believed that he was only a man, the natural-born son of Mary and Joseph. And they believed that the Christ was the divine spirit who came and took possession of the man Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan and then was with him through his ministry, enabling him to perform miracles. But the Christ spirit left the man Jesus before he hung on the cross. And that really is the basic doctrine of Christian science today. They teach that Jesus was a man and, and Christ was a spirit who took possession of him. So these heretical Gnostic views destroy the true humanity of Jesus. Or not only the humanity of Jesus, but also the atonement. Because Jesus not only had to be fully God, he also had to be fully man, a real physical man when he suffered and died on the cross in order for his substitutionary sacrifice for sin to be acceptable. So the Gnostics claim to have a, a knowledge higher than the Scriptures. When it came to living the Christian life, they were teaching you could live sinfully and yet claim that you had no sin and yet enjoy a very special, or and still, and still enjoy a very special fellowship with God. And thirdly, with regard to the Lord Jesus, they were teaching that there was no incarnation. There was no literal coming into human existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in the person of Jesus Christ, that he was truly God and truly man. They said, it can't be. And next week or the following week, when we get into the first chapter of 1 John, we'll see that right off the bat, John immediately deals with the issue of the incarnation in the first four verses there in chapter 1, where he lays the theological foundation for the rest of the letter. 
So in short, these false teachers were teaching that you could have a knowledge of God that bypassed faith in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. And they were offering to those who would follow them a Christianity which was without tears, which was without suffering, without pain, and without demand. And that kind of Christianity was very attractive during that period of church history. And that kind of false Christianity is very attractive today in 2002, which is why the cults have such an impact in our society. And it was because of the confusion and uncertainty that these individuals had caused in the church that John, under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, sat down and wrote the epistle of 1 John to counter the remaining and corrupting influence of these false teachers. And John himself tells us the reasons he wrote the book. In fact, he gives us four reasons. If you look at your Bible in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, we read, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John wrote this epistle so that, he says, your joy may be full. First John, in our study of it, should produce joy in our hearts. Second reason John gives is in chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John's second reason for writing this epistle was so that, he says, you may not sin. John wrote this epistle to prevent sin, to call believers to a standard of holy living. I mean, as Christians, we are not sinless, but we should be sinning less and less. Day by day, we ought to grow in grace and sin less today than we did yesterday. And if anybody does sin, John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he goes on to tell us that we can have forgiveness, and we'll talk more about that when we come to it. So our study of 1 John and our application of the truths that we find in this epistle should help us to sin less. A third reason John gives for writing this epistle is in chapter 2, verse 26, where John said, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. These things I have written, he says, concerning those who try to deceive you. 1 John was written to protect the saints against those false teachers who wanted to lead them astray. But in this letter, we need to understand, John doesn't rail against false teachers. Rather, with apostolic authority, he affirms the truth of the Word of God. He doesn't launch into a diatribe against these false teachers. Rather, John declares with power and authority the truths of God's Word. And as we study the truths in 1 John, it'll help us to recognize false doctrine. It'll protect us against false teachers who would lead us astray. And so John wrote this gospel, number one, so that believers' joy may be full. Number two, that they might sin less. Number three, to protect believers from false teachers. But the primary reason John wrote this letter is stated in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Please turn there, if you will. There in chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, 
and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 1 John is primarily a letter of assurance. As a result of the false teaching of these Gnostic heretics, there was much distress among believers. Confused and perplexed, some believers were doubting their salvation, and so John wrote to them that they might know they had eternal life. And there is the difference between John's gospel and his first epistle. John wrote his gospel in order that we might believe. Speaking of his gospel, John wrote, But these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel was written that you might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. The gospel of John was written so that people might come to know the Lord. And if you know someone who's not a Christian, the best thing that you can do for them is to put a copy of the gospel of John into their hands because John says that the book was written for the specific purpose of helping people come to believe that Jesus is the Christ and thus have eternal life. The Gospel of John was written that people might come to know Jesus. But the epistle of 1 John is written to people who already believe that Jesus is the Christ. John wrote 1 John to Christians so that they can know that they have eternal life. And the word know should be circled in your Bible. It's the key word in 1 John. In these five short chapters, John uses the word know over 30 times. All through 1 John, we'll read, We know, you know, I know, you have known. Some people say, well, you can't know anything for sure. You can't really know if you're going to go to heaven when you die. Yet John says, I am writing writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. The primary purpose for the book of 1 John is to provide assurance for the child of God. I mean, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. The second is closely related. It is to be absolutely sure that you're saved. People everywhere are wrestling with the issue of assurance of their salvation. They want to know, am I saved? Am I truly forgiven? Am I right with God? When I die, will I go to heaven? Can I be sure? And on what basis am I sure? How can I know that I'm born again? Now, these kind of heart-searching questions reflect the concern of many. And with many fears and many tears, people search their souls, desperately wanting to know where they stand with God. Am I saved or am I lost? Have you asked yourself this question recently? I mean, when you are alone and free to think, which if you're like me, isn't very often, but when you are alone and free to think, I mean, does this issue surface in your heart? And when you read your Bible or when you sit in church, do you think about this? When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, does this question echo in your mind? Am I saved or lost? Because until this issue is resolved, I mean, your life will be constantly unsettled. It is hard, even impossible, to live for God today when you're uncertain about where you're going to spend eternity. I mean, how can you have confident direction for the present when your future is so unsure? And truth be known, you can't. Does the Bible have any help for you? I mean, can God direct your heart to be absolutely sure where you stand with Him? Can you know that you have eternal life? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. 
We can be absolutely sure of our salvation. The Bible promises that we may have a settled confidence that eternal life belongs to us now. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, we can have the full assurance of faith. The Bible teaches that we can make certain we're saved. Peter exhorts believers. He said in 2 Peter, there in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he exhorted believers there to be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. 1 John was written for the purpose of addressing the issue of our assurance of salvation. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John, with apostolic authority coupled with pastoral love and care, wrote this book to help those who already believe to have assurance of their salvation. Because God wants all true believers to have the firm assurance of their salvation. Look again at John 5.13, 1 John 5.13. These things, he says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. He does not say, the, he does not say these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope or that you may guess or that you may speculate or wish that you had eternal life. Instead, God writes through John that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to be certain of your relationship with Him. He wants you to know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, that if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And more than a mere possibility, assurance is the promised privilege of every child of God. 1 John was written that we may be absolutely sure that we have eternal life. I mean, John writes in chapter 2, verse 5, by this we know that we are in Him. Chapter 2, verse 13, I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. Chapter 2, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Chapter 2, 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Chapter 3, verse 2, we know when He is revealed we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Chapter 3, verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Chapter 3, verse 24, and by this we know that He abides in us. Chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Chapter 4, verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know we love the children of God. 5.18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. 5.19, we know that we are of God. 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. We know, we know, we know. God wants us to know we belong to Him. Eternal life is not an issue. He wants clouding our minds with doubt, but something He desires to be very clear in our hearts. As one commentator said, God wants us to have a no-so salvation. He continued, figuratively speaking, God does not want you to be a question mark, all bent over in doubt with your head hung low. Rather, He wants you to be an exclamation mark, standing erect with head held high, strengthened by a God-produced confidence in your faith. Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Spurgeon said that he was so sure of his salvation 
that he could grab onto a corn stalk and swing out over the fires of hell and look into the face of the devil and sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. (laughs) Now that's assurance. And that's the kind of assurance that we should have in our hearts as well. And this book of 1 John will help all who have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ to have assurance. And one more word about assurance before we move on. Looking back at 1 John 5.13, we notice that John says, These things I have written to you. With deliberate emphasis, John declares here that assurance of our salvation must come from God's word. I have written to you. Our assurance about eternal life is based solely upon what God says in his word regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is on this basis alone that we may be absolutely sure that we belong to him. Our salvation, our assurance is not based upon our feelings. We cannot gauge where we stand with God by our feelings. That kind of goosebump approach to eternal life is subject to all kinds of things. Things like fluctuating mood swings, fragile personalities and and fickle temperaments, and not only that, loss of sleep, pressure at work, home or school, hormones and, and physical problems can greatly affect one's feelings about their relationship with God. People who rely upon feelings for the assurance of their salvation are going to be riding an emotional roller coaster. I mean, when they're up, they feel saved. When they're down, they feel lost. And I tell you, I pity the person who tries to live this way. Only the eternal, unchanging Word of God can be the ultimate basis for our assurance. The certainty that we possess eternal life rests upon upon believing what God has said in His Word. Because the new birth infuses divine life into our once dead souls, it becomes obvious over time who has truly believed in Jesus Christ. And as our faith deepens, so the assurance of our salvation deepens as we see God's grace at work within us bringing about these changes. We can know that our faith is real as we see the evidence of a changed life. And the book of 1 John records for us the clear evidences of eternal life, the vital signs, if you will, of the person who has truly believed in Jesus Christ. These things, John said, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The false teachers though they had left the church, had done damage. Their influence had undermined the assurance of believers. They had lost their joy. And John writes to reverse the entire situation. He writes to restore right belief, to restore joy and love in the churches, to prevent sin, to protect, and primarily to give assurance of salvation. John wants his little children to know the reality of the Incarnation, to maintain real fellowship with the Father and the Son and with each other, to be realistic about sin and yet not be complacent about it, 
to live in obedience and show the love of Jesus in their fellowship and to once again experience joy. And he wants them to be assured of their salvation. So that covers who wrote the book and why he wrote it. Next is why study First John? And why study this little book? Well, for the reasons we've already stated, but beyond that, first and most, and actually this is really rather obvious, but I make no apologies for it, why study First John? Because it's a part of the Word of God. And because God has given us the Scriptures that we might study them. 1 John is a part of Scripture, and as 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason that we study the Bible, be it 1 John or any other book, is not because that's what you're supposed to do when the church gathers together, although it is. The reason we do it is because the Bible is all that we have to reveal to us the fullness of Christ. What it means to know Him. What it means to follow Him and what it means to tell others about Him. And it's for that reason that we open up the Word of God. God's Word is life. It's reality. It is spiritual nourishment. It provides the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary for life and godliness. And so while it may be very obvious to many of us why we should study the Bible, it may not be obvious to others who have come from churches where you're used to attend a 15-minute monologue that has a vague reference to the Bible. And now you've come here and you wonder why we take so much time and give so much attention to the teaching of the Word of God. Well, the answer is in 2 Timothy. It's Scripture, and therefore it is profitable for all these things. So, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're not studying the Bible on Sundays and Wednesdays so that I can talk without interruption. I mean, we're not studying the Word of God so that we can all become theological eggheads and strut around spouting off Bible verses and Bible doctrine. I mean, we're studying the Word of God so that as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God and the lives of the people of God, we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work which God has given to every member within this body. So, when we come to the Word of God, we're coming to school, so to speak. We're coming to learn. We're coming also to a hospital that we might be healed, but we're also coming to a gymnasium so that we might be trained in exercise so that we can go out and use our spiritual muscles so that those who are in need of help can be helped and that those who need to hear the Word of God can hear it from you. Why study First John? Well, because it's part of Scripture. A second reason we study First John is because it addresses contemporary questions. Questions like, does it matter what one believes? Questions like, can God be known apart from Jesus Christ? Surely people then and today say, it's enough simply to know God. I mean, we all know Him in our own way and we, we all find Him in our own direction. But what John writes cuts out that kind of nonsense. I mean, First John is so apropos for the day and age in which we live. People today don't like people who say they know things. 
They like people who say they don't know things. I mean, you'll have far more friends if you tell them you don't know than if you know. They'll listen to you about Jesus as long as you tell them that you don't really know if he's the only way, but it's really exciting you. And they'll like that because that's all-inclusive. And they may even tell you about the avenue they're on. Maybe it's you know, the New Age or Buddhism or whatever. And they'll invite everyone in the office to tell about the avenue that they're on, and they'll be very accommodating as long as they think you're willing to accept the fact that any and all roads lead to God or to heaven. But if you set your coffee cup down and say this, let me tell you something, folks. There is no other name given among, under heaven among men by which we must be saved, save the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They're going to look at you and say to you, out of what hole did you crawl? I mean, how intolerant can you be? You don't mean to tell me that Jesus is the only way, do you? I mean, you're not going to tell me that the Buddhists don't know God. You're not going to tell me that all those devout Muslims bowing down in prayer three times a day facing Mecca don't know God, are you? I mean, you're not going to tell me that we all can't find our own way to God through many different avenues and religions, are you? Well, as we read 1 John... we'll see that there is to be no shyness or hesitancy about our Christian testimony. We're not to be arrogant or cavalier, but we need not be shy or hesitant about faith in Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation, the only way to know the true and the living God. In 1 John, John speaks with absolute certainty in an age of theological vagueness. John speaks with authority and certainty. Everything is absolute. The character of the non-Christian, the character of the Christian. I mean, everything is black and white with John. 1 John is all about certainties and absolutes, not opinions. Why? Because Christianity is not based upon opinions, but rather it is based upon absolutes. 1 John is about knowing things for certain. John writes to say, listen guys, we want to tell you about what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, and what we have touched. We were there, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Jesus is alive, and it is only by belief in him that we have eternal life. The third reason why we would study 1 John is because it provides the tests of life. I mean, as we said, John is a book of certainties, a book of knowing a book of assurance. John wants the children of God to know they have eternal life. And so how is it that we know we have eternal life? Well, as we go through 1 John, we'll see that John gives three tests of genuine faith. First of all, the test of true belief. Second, the test of true obedience. And third, the test of true love. 1 John gives us the foundational hallmarks of those who are truly in Christ. And those who are truly in Christ will believe, and they will believe correctly. And they will be obedient to God's word because no one who is a genuine believer continually lives in sin. Christ will not only love God, but love their brothers and sisters in Christ as well. 1 John lays before us the biblical basis for the assurance of salvation. 
In this book, we will learn how anyone who puts his trust in Jesus Christ can know with absolute certainty that he is saved. And so our study in 1 John is going to be challenging. It's going to be especially challenging for the church-attending religious person who professes faith but whose life has never changed. It is going to be especially challenging for those who have heads full of knowledge about Jesus Christ but hearts devoid of a personal relationship with Him. And for the person who thinks that because salvation is a gift of divine grace, self-examination is not necessary, who regards spiritual fruit as irrelevant, and whose life is totally devoid of any practical evidence of salvation, this is going to really be challenging. Why? Because 1 John destroys the false confidence of those who have a counterfeit faith. But for the person who's saved, for the person who's saved but is living in doubt rather than enjoying their position in Christ, for the dear believer who beats himself up and is obsessed with their failures and despairs over every sign of fleshly deficiency they have in their hearts, for the precious believer who is struggling with assurance, this book is going to be a great comfort because 1 John confirms the assurance of those with a genuine faith. God wants you to know that you belong to him. And for those of you who are saved and you have a full and blessed assurance of your salvation, well, 1 John for you will be a great reminder of all the reasons you have to rejoice in God's mercies and grace. John's primary reason for writing this letter is clear. To help those who already believe to have assurance of their salvation. And at the same time, to expose those who are religious but lost and awaken them to their unsaved condition so that they may come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ and have the fullness of joy that only comes from a relationship and fellowship with God and His Son. I want to give you some homework. I know you love that. But I'd like you to read the book of 1 John every day if you could. As we go through this, and it'll probably take us, I don't know, three, four months. But if you could read the book of 1 John every day, I tell you, by the end of that three or four months, you're going to know it forwards and backwards. You'll find that a lot of it will be committed to memory. So I want to encourage you to do that. And if you miss a day or two, don't give up. Just start over again. So read the book of 1 John. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the challenges it contains. 
the guidance that it gives us and the encouragement that we find in it, Lord, for our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, may we be committed to your word and, and to you. We thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done. We thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing